Hello everyone, my name is Eric Mercier. I'm co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm gonna walk you through the February edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, the first wine that we have today is from Cantina Marlena. So if you remember from last month, we talked about how much we love Marlena and all the work that she's doing down in Sicily. Uh, and this wine is no different. Uh, absolutely spectacular bang for buck is, is one of the major things about this wine. Uh, we've been telling people for a while now that if you're on the hunt for a, for a house wine, this is definitely an ideal option. Uh, a, it's crowd-pleasing. Uh, B, it goes with pretty much any food item you can you can possibly think of that pairs well with red wine, whether you be going, you know, chicken, pizza, pasta, anything like that. It, it's going to go great with, uh, with this wine. And then the price is unbelievable. Um, I'm not sure exactly uh, what... Uh, what allows them to produce wines for these prices. I know land prices are, are fairly cheap in Sicily. Uh, I think they also have some, um, I'm not sure if it's government subsidies or exactly how that works, but for small agricultural operations, because they obviously don't want to lose that. It's such a huge part of Italy's history and cultural identity that I'm, I'm pretty sure they're uh, you know, there's a, a lot of opportunities. I know in particular for uh, a lot of the producers um, in in southern Italy, there are grants you can get as a, as a female winemaker or, uh, again, even involved in agriculture in general uh, that's supposed to, again, encourage the next generation to continue on. Um, yeah, farming is just so important for, for, you know, Italy being one of the bread baskets of of all of Europe, essentially, and especially Southern Italy. Um, most of the wine in Sicily, in fact, up until fairly recently, I can't remember the exact date, but I want to say that it was, you know, like late 80s, early 90s, something along those lines. Uh, most of it was exported in tanker truck. It never actually went into bottle. Uh, it was literally shipped all over the world in these, in these massive uh, tankers and then either used for blending wine to make other wines from other countries taste a little bit better uh, or used for, you know, bulk supermarket wine that was bottled in the UK, for instance, um, bottled in Germany. Uh, but now you're seeing this resurgence of, of Sicily being famous for actually making, you know, high quality wine, which is very exciting. Um, Sicily is very different than a lot of the rest of Italy. It's actually closer in proximity to, you know, northern Africa than it is to northern Italy. And so the the food culture is definitely influenced um, by the fact that this was a huge trading port. Uh, you know, you think of everybody coming from the Near East, you think of people traveling uh, from India, uh, you think of people traveling from North Africa, this was sort of, you know, a central point. And so you have a lot of influence from from all those places, you have, uh, you know, a lot more rice, uh, so things kind of similar to like tagines, uh, you see a lot more influence of citrus fruits and nuts and sweet, uh, you know, sweet elements and savory dishes, whether that be, uh, raisins or figs or, uh, you know, dried apricots, things like that. You see a lot of that work in the way into, into their cuisine. So it's, it's a really, really exciting place to, uh, explore from a food perspective. 
From a grape perspective, it's also really interesting. There are a handful of indigenous varieties. If you look up to Mount Etna, uh, the most famous is Norello Masculese. Um, but if you're looking further south in in uh, in Sicily, you see Nero Davila, which is what this wine is primarily made from, although there's a little bit of Merlot in here as well. Uh, when they purchased the property, however long ago that was now, uh, there was a handful of international grape varieties planted here. Uh, and instead of ripping them out immediately, they decided that they would find their way into their entry-level blend, despite the fact that they're of obscenely high quality. Um, so Nero Davila, really interesting grape variety. For me, it does taste a lot like Merlot, so it makes sense to blend the two together. It's got this sort of soft fruit characteristic to it, like warm plums, um, this sort of equal parts red and black fruit, which is always exciting to me uh, when it's that really sort of centered style. Uh, and, you know, usually it has very soft tannins, but for some reason, the bottlings that Cantina Marlina does are actually quite tannic, quite physical, um, have these sort of brawny tannins to them that make them really sort of gastronomic, which is, again, very useful, especially when you're thinking of Italian wine. Italian wine almost universally is designed to go with food uh, and almost doesn't make sense without food. You know, drinking a bottle of Chianti without food it isn't really the most pleasing thing to me or drinking a bottle of Barolo without food or, or Rosso de Montalcino or, or realistically any, especially the Reds. Uh, you know, they just want to be, you know, alongside high acid, bright, fresh food, uh, lots of intensity, lots of rich flavors. So um, yeah, her version of, uh, of um, Nero Davila tends to be a little bit more on the tannic side, which is, again, great for a wine of this stature. Um, the other really nice thing about Nero Davila, and the reason why you're starting to see it planted in in uh, quite a few more places, whether that be in California, whether that be in Australia, it's starting to become very popular, is that it is quite drought-resistant and quite heat-resistant. Uh, if you see a vineyard that has, you know, a bunch of different grape varieties planted together and the weather gets up to 40 degrees, most of those grape varieties are going to, um, the, the vines will literally droop. They'll sort of just f like fall over. Uh, it's because they're trying to protect as much water as, as possible. So they're bringing that water into their roots. Um, and essentially they, they just go sort of dormant. They're not really photosynthesizing, uh, therefore they're not really ripening the grapes. And so you, you end up with this stagnation of ripening partway through the season. Um, versus Nerodavila, you'll notice that the vines are still standing straight up. They're still totally happy in 40 degree weather. So in, in order to counteract uh, the effects of climate change, a lot of people are looking for grape varieties like this that are a little more resilient to heat, to drought, to salinity in the soil, different things like that. And so Nerodavila is a really great candidate. Uh, this wine is made in a really traditional way. If you think about uh, Marlena's winemaking in general, you can basically think back to ancient Roman times, which is, uh, you know, fermentation on skins uh, in concrete, uh, large concrete vessels. So you're not getting any influence from oak here. So anything that you're getting that's maybe sort of wood spice or anything like that, that's actually coming from the grape, not from the vessel that it's aging in. Um, it undergoes uh, elevage in concrete as well. So again, you're not really getting any flavor from the aging vessel. 
so I think that that's really important, especially for a natural wine where the whole idea is transparency. You want to show off place. You want to show off fruit. Uh, this region has really glorious calcareous soils. They're sort of white, bright soils. Uh, they really reflect the sunlight. And so, you know, if you're masking all the flavors that come from that beautiful combination of uh, sort of Mediterranean climate and these bright white soils, uh, if you're putting oak over the top of it, you, you know, you're sort of masking some of the things that we find really interesting about this wine that are that are very exciting. So I think that even though this wine retails for somewhere around $25, I think that it's giving you incredible bang for buck as far as complexity. Um, and, you know, I can go back to this bottle over and over again and, and not really get bored. Uh, so I think that that's a, <laughs> a huge positive. Our second wine this month is uh, another wine from Lightning Rock. Um, previously in the wine club, we managed to fit in uh, the Canyon View Pinot Noir, which is uh, one of the vineyards that Lightning Rock works with, which is about a you know five minute drive away from where this vineyard is, yet they're entirely different. Canyon View Vineyard literally sits in a canyon. Um, it's very warm there. Uh, it's kind of a heat sink a little bit. Um, you know, when we were working there, it, it was honestly uh, sometimes over five degrees warmer than it was uh, in Alicia Vineyard, which is the vineyard that we're going to talk about today. So the Alicia Vineyard, um, this vineyard is overlooking the lake. Uh, it's planted on basically a big rocky outcropping, a big granitic outcropping um, from what we call Giant's Head Mountain, which is uh, essentially the mountain that sits over top of uh, over top of Summerland. So if you're in the Okanagan and you happen to be visiting Kelowna, which most people do, even though Penticton is way better. So once you end up in Kelowna and have absolutely no cool wineries to go to, I suggest driving south to where Summerland is. Uh, it's sort of the closest region that actually has some, some pretty epic vineyards. Although, again, obviously I really love Sperling. I really love uh, Tantalus. Um, but if you're looking for, you know, true sort of very small natural winemakers, uh, drive south to, to Lightning Rock. Um and, uh, and you'll notice this big, essentially, it, it looks like it's like a, you know, a 50-story high boulder uh, sitting on the side of the lake. And that's what they're planted beneath. Um, a lot of heat sort of radiates off of, off of that rock, um, but it also makes it so that uh, the soils are, uh, have a lot lower nutrient than in a lot of the rest of the Okanagan. A lot of the Okanagan is planted on glacial silt um, and, and sort of these loamy soils, which end up, again, providing a lot of nutrients to the vines uh, when really you want vines to maybe struggle a little bit. Not, not so much struggle, but uh, you don't want to, you know, feed them too much, essentially. Then the grapes just become big and fat and don't really have a ton of flavor versus when you're planted on these low-nutrient soils, where there's not a ton of water, uh, where it's constantly getting hit with wind, these grapes develop a lot more character, a lot more intensity, a lot more depth. Uh, and so that's exactly what you're seeing at this particular site. Um, they have a variety of different clones planted on, on this site. Um, two in particular, both Burgundian clones, uh, that tend to make the wines taste very Burgundian. Uh, in a lot of the Okanagan, you'll see uh, German clones or sparkling wine clones or uh, some clones that are actually uh, developed in the Okanagan. Um, these 
clones, which are, if you're unfamiliar with the word clones, uh, basically there's a bunch of subspecies of Pinot Noir, and they all taste a little bit different. Um, you know, the Burgundian clones like Pomard uh, and the Dijon clones, um, you know, they, they tend to impart a lot of flavors that taste like Burgundy versus the Germanic clones are, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that they're not quite as good. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of people would argue with that. And maybe I just haven't had great examples. But for me, there's always this sort of clunkiness to them. And then sparkling wine clones, um, because Pinot Noir is often used in the production of, of sparkling wine, uh, even in places like Champagne. In fact, that was sort of the originator of that style. Um, they tend to be better for making sparkling wine than they are for making red wine. And so when you make a red wine from them, they tend to be quite acidic and thin and sort of lacking the depth and complexity uh, that you should get. So the actual plant material that they have in the ground here is unbelievably good. Uh, and that leads to some of the quality of the actual wine in the end. Um, again, healthy soils, healthy grapevines, uh, good quality plant material. Those things are, are your building blocks. Uh, essentially, all you're trying to do in the winery is not mess it up, <laughs> uh, but you need everything else in place in order to to get a wine that's going to make sense. Um, this vineyard is farmed uh, organically uh, by Tyler and Jordan, um, the husband and wife team that are, are running this property. Uh, they own all three vineyards that they're working with at the moment. So uh, Alicia, uh, St. Cat's, and then Canyon View that we were talking about before. And uh, they're all within, again, a five-minute drive of one another. They're really trying to celebrate the diversity within one tiny region, which is Summerland. Uh, it's, it's crazy how different these sites are from one another. If you ever get a chance, definitely go out there and, and visit because you'll feel temperature differences, wind differences, uh, the way the sun hits it because of aspect, uh, all incredibly, incredibly important. And so um, I, I think it's definitely worth checking out. This is from the 2019 vintage, uh, so it's it's young and bright and fresh. Uh, when we tasted the two uh, single vineyard Pinot Noirs side by side this year, this was the one that immediately was like, okay, this is meant for drinking young. It's joyous. It's energetic. It's juicy. It's bouncy. Uh, it's got a lot of the things that I love about Pinot Noir from a complexity perspective, but it has uh, some of the characteristics that I love of, of Beaujolais or Gamay Noir in general, uh, as far as a textural thing. So although there are, you know, some delicate tannins here, uh, it's definitely more focused on bright, fresh fruit and then the real rockiness that you get from, from granitic soils. I think, uh, you know, if you look at places like Beaujolais that are planted on granite or wines grown in southern Chile and Itata, um, which is also granite, you really see uh, this sort of family resemblance of this this vivid fruit characteristic as well as this sort of peppery quality. Um, and I think that that comes through in this wine in a really, really beautiful way. Uh, this wine was fermented partially as whole clusters, so where they don't take the grapes off the stems, somewhere between 25 and 75% depending on the lot. Um, they keep every block of the vineyard separate while fermenting so that they can really get a handle on what each area of the vineyard needs. Uh, maybe one part of the vineyard will need a little bit more nitrogen, so they'll adjust their uh, compost regime uh, in order to you know, supplement. They'll maybe change up their cover crops. They'll maybe do more weeding. Uh, all these different things they can tell from the fermentation and how healthy the fermentation is smelling. Um, 
And, and so, yeah, they keep everything separate until time of blending, which allows them to do, you know, more whole cluster in certain areas, less whole cluster in other areas in the sort of warmer parts of the vineyard uh, where you're getting more uh, what we call lignification, which is essentially when um, the stems start turning brown and start getting sweet. You'll want to use more of those stems because they have that sweetness. They have that soft, spicy quality. Uh, and because this wine was was aged uh, mostly in neutral oak barrels, although there are a couple of sort of younger barrels in there that are going to import some spice, some of that whole cluster sort of woodsy spice that's coming from the stems gets along really, really well um, with some of the characteristics of these these nearly neutral barrels. Uh, again, I think that this is an absolutely mind-bending wine. Everybody who we've poured it for so far has been like, this is very impressive. You know, on the shortlist for Best Pinot Noirs, ever made in the Okanagan, I would say. And I'm incredibly biased because we work there for harvest uh, and we absolutely love those guys. But at the same time, I, I honestly think that if I were to taste this blind, I'd be like, this is incredibly, incredibly good Pinot. Um, from a Burgundy perspective, you know, you're, you're looking at sort of an equivalent to to Marcinet or uh, Fiction, um, which are sort of the northern uh, regions of the Cote de Nuit. Uh, these sort of lighter, more ethereal, but still very dark-fruited uh, styles of Pinot, which, again, I, I just absolutely adore. Uh, I feel like I've been just rambling about this wine because I'm just so excited about it. <laughs> uh, as far as pairings go, again, for Pinot Noir, I like to keep it simple. I think a lot of people, because Pinot Noir is so easy to pair with things, they really like sort of going out of the box. Um, but a lot of the times I really like just going classic so that the wine can continue to show through. Uh, I think that it's really great when a wine complements a dish, but it's also really great when the dish complements the wine. Uh, and I think that that's the case with something like roast chicken where um, it can actually help show more of the flavor characteristics of the actual wine uh, because of the sort of synergy of the pairing. Uh, you know, usually with wine pairings, I think a lot of people's goal is just not to mess up the wine, not have the wine taste bad, but it's, it's very seldom to make the wine taste better. Uh, <laughs> and so for me, I, I really like the simple pairing here. Um, if you want to geek out about chicken, uh, the way that I've been preparing chicken lately, uh, which is very time consuming, but really sort of worthwhile is I do a brine. Um, what I've been doing is breaking down the chicken so that, uh, you know, I take the legs off, take the wings off, uh, and take the back off, uh, but basically leave, you know, the breasts on the bones still. And what I'll do is I'll just brine that component of it. Uh, and then I'll take that and I'll dry age it for, you know, two to three days. And what's that, what that is doing is really concentrating the flavor. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, like, but you're getting rid of all the water. It's not going to be juicy. Like, well, do you want it to be juicy or do you want it to be watery? We're, we're just concentrating all the uh, the other things that are juicy in the actual chicken. Uh, it's going to need less cooking as well, too. Uh, and so you'll end up with something that's really juicy with incredibly crispy skin because you've really dried out those skin that skin uh it's uh yeah if you want more details about that let's definitely geek out about it but i also love just taking off the legs because honestly everything cooks at a different time so i actually take the legs and i confit them um either in i have a combination of like duck fat and chicken fat uh from every time that i buy a whole chicken i just cut off the fat render it out uh add it to my my duck fat and then every time i 
by duck. I also render the fat on that. Uh, and so it's sort of this perpetual reserve of both, uh, of both chicken and duck fat. And so I actually confit the legs in that and then, uh, and then finish it in the oven so they get nice and crispy as well. But honestly, I think that that's the way better way of doing it is doing it as two separate things. And then, yeah, I take the backs and the, uh, and the wings, I roast those really, really hard, uh, make a stock from that. And then I've got gravy. And so essentially you've used the entire bird, but you've ended up with, uh, a bunch of different dishes. You've got, uh, you know, comfy legs, uh, these sort of brined and roasted chicken breasts that are just like, you know, still on the bone. So they're still getting all the flavor from that as well too. Uh, you're still ending up with those proper roasty flavors, uh, and then also getting some, some stock, or if you want to make gravy, uh, obviously definitely worth making gravy as well. So anyways, that's my, I'm thinking about this because that's literally what I'm having tomorrow. Uh, and I've been thinking about it all week and I'm very excited. So if you, uh, if you need more chicken assistance, more than happy to walk you through the process uh, <laughs> as I get incredibly off topic here. This is what happens when I do these podcasts alone is, is I'm essentially just sitting by myself and, uh, and you know, geeking out. Uh, our final wine this month, we've wanted to put this wine in wine club for uh, at least nine months now. But unfortunately, in, uh, in Chile, where this wine comes from, they've had a huge bottle shortage because of COVID. Uh, we're seeing this worldwide where glass prices are going up in, like so, so much. Um, so a lot of the, the wines that we're getting are going to be a lot more expensive in the next year. Uh, this is partially because of shipping. This is partially because of uh, bottle costs. Cork costs have gone through the roof. Uh, essentially every part of the of the process has gone up in price. So in Chile, you know, producers have been sitting with wine in tank for months just trying to get glass to put their wine in. And so after uh, waiting for that and then waiting for shipping delays that, that push this wine back, I don't even know how long, eight months or something like that, uh, we finally have the wine that we ordered for Wine Club. Uh, this is one of my favorites. It's from Louis-Antoine Lutte. Um, this is the Pepeño Blanco. Uh, back in the day when I used to work at Vine Arts, this was one of my favorite wines to sell. Uh, since then, the importing agency that used to sell this wine got uh, taken over by sort of like a more massive agency. And so they dropped all the small producers. They weren't really interested in natural wine anymore. And so uh, we reached out to uh, Louis-Antoine and he was like, yeah, we would love to work with you. Uh, and we've been, uh, working together ever since. So this is our second vintage working with them. Um, and, uh, this is again, sort of one of the wines that really got me interested in, in Southern Chile in general. Uh, so Louis Antoine, to give you a little background on him, uh, he actually grew up in Beaujolais. Uh, he's from France. Uh, he grew up under the tutelage, uh, of Marcel Lapierre. Uh, and then after that, uh, you know, with the rest of the family and, uh, and so his, his winemaking experience is unbelievable. You know, if you can choose anybody in the world to learn from, I think Marcel Lapierre would, would probably be on that short list for sure, especially if you're interested in natural and, and sort of minimal intervention wines. Um, eventually, he found himself in Chile and fell in love with a handful of things, one being the super old vines there. Uh, most of the vines that he works with are between 100 and 300 years old. Uh, planted with grape varieties that you don't really see planted very many places anymore. Um, at the time that they came over uh, via, you know, sort of colonial influences, um, they were planted a little bit in Europe, but uh, 
because of you know isolation in a, in a lot of ways uh, these great varieties that are you know centuries old and have fallen out of favor uh, remain in the soil here and so he was like this is unbelievable this is like a snapshot of what was happening you know two three hundred years ago not only that but uh, you know the the um, people in southern Chile have an entirely different winemaking technique that they have adapted uh, to sort of their own needs, uh, to the flavors that they prefer in the wines. Um, and it's, you know, and he found this, you know, incredibly fascinating after growing up in Beaujolais where, uh, it's not like there's super strict rules in Beaujolais for what you have to do, but there is a, sort of a traditional method and it is very French and it is very, I don't know, historic, Uh, And so going over to Chile and seeing these entirely different methods and how they yield wines that are equivalently beautiful and delicious and uh, equally valid, he was like, okay, cool. I'm very excited about this. The other thing that he noticed was that uh, a lot of these producers uh, didn't necessarily have the resources to uh, bottle or export or, um, you know, sort of get their name out there. And so for him, it was a lot about highlighting these farmers and, and being like, hey, like you make amazing wine, you make wine that's as good as any of the wines from from you know France at the same price point for sure. Um, but honestly, just world world class wines. And so uh, his idea was, hey, uh, you know, I can provide you with bottling, uh, you know, packaging, that sort of thing. And then you know, like let's put the name of your vineyard on the label. Uh, you know, on our website, we're going to chat about. Uh, you as a farmer and we're going to geek out about this and, and, you know, your wines deserve to be known worldwide. And so now he has this sort of collective of farmers that he works with who he doesn't mess around with their wine. He makes some of his own wine from their grapes uh, as, as a separate project, uh, which is under sort of the Louis Antoine Lute label. Um, but the Pipeno bottlings uh, are all about sort of these individual farmer, uh, farmers uh, and the grapes that they've been, you know, farming for generations and winemaking techniques that they've been using for generations. Um, so I think it's a really cool project all in. The Pepeño Blanco, this is an orange wine. Uh, it's uh, made from a bunch of grape varieties that, again, people are probably unfamiliar with. Uh, Toronto, Corinto, uh, Cristalina, and Muscat d'Alexandria. Uh, Muscat, probably one that you've heard of. Some of these grape varieties have uh, have alternate names depending on where you are in the world. Corinto is Chasselas, uh, and Cristalina is, is known as Semio. Um, I'm not sure how accurate those, uh, <laughs> those links are, um, but hopefully that is what we're, we're actually tasting in the, uh, in the glass here. Uh, this wine for me is incredibly energetic. It's got so many tea-like qualities, so many stone fruit characteristics. Uh, it's just a joy to drink. It's hyper aromatic. Uh, it's got this beautiful texture to it. Um, some of the grippiness from the skin fermentation, uh, as well as a lot of freshness from, from these vines being, uh, at higher altitude levels, uh, grown in sort of these hills. They're quite far South as well too. So you can think of it being a climate that's maybe a little more similar to what we see in, you know, Northern California, for instance, would be a, a sort of good comparison, quite warm, but at the same time, that really big diurnal shift where you're getting quite cool at night. Uh, so you're able to get wines or grapes ripe at lower levels of potential alcohol, lots of freshness, lots of energy to them. Uh, absolutely delicious. Uh, our brand new employee, uh, as of a couple months ago, uh, Mark Huchot, he is, 
uh, of Chilean descent. And so we, we decided to harass him and ask him whether or not he'd be able to come up with some pairings for uh, for this particular bottling. And so he sort of geeked out, did a little bit of research and came up with a couple uh, really awesome pairings. Check that out in the newsletter on the website. Uh, I've included links uh, just in case you want to actually make these yourself, which I strongly suggest. Honestly, the pairings are, are definitely always just suggested, but uh, we really love when people send us messages saying, hey, we actually did what you said in the pairing. Uh, a lot of research goes into it, and so it's always nice uh, knowing that it actually contributed to somebody's night. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's pretty much all I have to say for this month. We'll keep it a little shorter because the last couple have been uh, quite long. If you listen to the uh, the premium podcast last time, we chatted with Mai Takahashi about sake, uh, as well as the wines that we had in the actual wine club. So that one's really interesting. So if you have time, go back and listen to that. Uh, but until then, if anybody has any questions, you can send me an email at eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. You can send us a message on Instagram. We're just at juiceimports. Regardless, we'd love to hear from you. We're looking forward to chatting further and drinking more wine together soon. Thanks so much.